I had a, a wonderful break over Christmas, and uh, especially this past week, my wife and I were able to spend a week in San Francisco. And uh, as is the case, I, my vacation tradition is I come back from vacation sick. Uh, I usually come back this way because when I take a few days off, apparently my immune system thinks it's okay for it to take some time off too. So this happens just about every time I go away, which kind of discourages me from uh, taking vacations. Now, I could smartly not go to San Francisco in the winter when it's raining. That might help things a bit. Carolyn and I actually do prefer vacations in warmer climates. Uh, one such vacation was when we went to Mexico. In particular, it was Cosmo, and we got to go uh, snorkeling. Of course, there's the obligatory snorkeling picture of Carolyn and I. They charge $50 each for these, but you can't say no. At the moment they take the picture, you think, this is so novel. <laughs> and, and, and there you go. Uh, the reason this trip was really important to me was that it wasn't the first time I'd been to the Caribbean. It was the first time I'd been there with Carolyn. I had previously gone as part of a mission outreach and got to see the beaches and the waters, and, and, uh, and I didn't get to have her along for that trip. And so on this particular journey, I was able to actually enjoy it with her. And I know for some of you, whether it's your best friend or whether it's your spouse or whether it's your kids, you know, there are certain experiences in life that you just don't want to do alone. Um, I love going to the movies, for instance, but I do not like going to a movie theater by myself. Um, part of it is that uh, I feel lonely, and then part of it is the sad look on everybody's face as they see me sitting there by myself, kind of like, it's not that bad, I have a family at home, you know, that kind of thing. And you just don't want people to be tortured with, oh, you feel so bad for that mom, old guy. Anyway, uh, th and then you think about the other things in life. You know, when's the last time you went to a concert by yourself? Now, that's not ideal. Now, you may have had to do that from time to time, but those things are always things we like to do with others. I've been to a, uh, more athletic contests than I can tell you about, but I have never gone to a live athletic contest by myself. I, I always say, hey, want to go, want to go, and if I can't get anybody to go, I watch it on TV. Never been to a Dodger game alone. Thought about it, never have. Because life wasn't meant to be lived alone. Now there's time for alone. There's important seasons where it's really important for us to be alone with God. We talked about that a little in last week's message. But I know that we were designed by God to live in close community. And this is a challenge for 21st century Westerners to embrace because our lives look very different than the lifestyle of believers in the scriptures. Oftentimes, they're characterized by people with real close care and concern for one another. We are raised in countries that pride themselves on being individualistic. We are rugged individuals in a culture that was, in this context, America, founded on a group of people that thought it was important to have a bill of rights that would line out the individual rights of people. This is in our DNA culturally. So when we start talking about communal stuff, most of us have kind of a reaction like, that sounds a little creepy. You know, like, uh, that is sounding a little California commune-y, you know. And I don't want you to freak out in that way, but honestly, you have to see in Scripture that not only are they living this way, but if you think about it, we are wired 
this way. And church shouldn't be just a place where you blow in, wave to people that you marginally know, and then blow out. For a lot of us, this is how we grew up. Uh, we went to church. We knew nobody at church, but we went out of a sense of obligation. We are talking about today, as we do at the beginning of each semester, fall and spring, the importance of finding a place where you can actually know others that you do church with. Church is supposed to be about more than just Sunday mornings. Now, there are reasons we don't do those things. Um, I understand that living uh, for others, maybe sacrificing our time and energy for others, is a foreign concept. For, for many, uh, they look back to yesteryear America and think there was a time where we lived communally and everything was grand and dandy, but there wasn't. There was all sorts of social injustice taking place inside that little fairy tale. So we're not about just saying everything used to be great. We're saying, what are we made for? And what is God calling us to? And how do we do that? Now, we have community groups as one means of facilitating community. But before we even get into challenging ourselves to think about involvement with others, before we get into the question of whether or not we want to make the time and the effort and the energy to be involved in other people's lives on a spiritual plane, there are a couple of questions that are foundational and need to be addressed about why we would invest this time in the first place. And to do that, we're going to have to look at our passage in Scripture in Acts 4 today, but we're going to have to take a personal inventory. So before I even start, uh, my exegesis of uh, Acts chapter 4 and 5. Let me just tell you that for the last 30 some odd years I've been involved in the church and the last 20 something years I've been a pastor and I can tell you that I've seen and felt just about anything you would see and feel as it pertains uh, to, uh, to why we wouldn't get involved in community. The number of times I've sat in my own family room and said, gosh, I wish I didn't have to go to community group tonight. If I had $100 for every time I said that over the last 30 years, I'd have a considerable nest egg on which my retirement could be based. Maybe you know the feeling. I know that there are some barriers that keep you and I from involvement in community. And one more thing, and so uh, real quickly, uh, the assessment I would make from my own experience, and you may disagree with me and that's fine, is that it requires a sacrifice of our time. And as we prioritize our lives, we begin to say, I know that this is important because I have made time for it. And so sometimes we have to assess and we assess, this isn't a valuable enough experience for me to blow three hours on or two hours or however long that group would meet for. We have to genuinely evaluate and reevaluate and take stock of whether or not we see our time as our own or as Christians, is it God's time that we are just to steward? We talk about things when we talk about time, the sacrifice of time, the effort it takes to be punctual. I'm telling college students this all the time. You know, that it says something about your prioritizing of something, whether or not you can show up on time. I mean, if you're an employer, would you... Did you ever hire somebody who showed up late for a job interview? Uh, probably not. And because it communicates to you in one way or another. So I know that being involved with others requires 
uh, you and I reassessing whether or not we really want to give time to that. It also requires effort, which is like related to but separate from time. Uh, effort is you and I saying, I'm going to actually get up off the couch, get back into the car, and drive someplace because I'm really tired. And you feel that sense of weight. You're lugging yourself like you're lugging to the gym. And this is really challenging for people who live in metropolitan areas because if your commute was an hour to begin with, and then on top of that, you, you know, you feel like in the morning i got to do this all over again, it makes it really hard to feel like this is going to require a, an effort on my part, and I feel like I'm out of gas. And then finally, there's just a sacrifice of comfort. Now, for some, this comfort takes on the, the characterization of uh, I'm going into a new place, and I don't know anybody, and it's kind of an awkward sort of, middle school dance experience where you walk in and you go, gosh, I hope people are going to be nice to me. You know, and, and it's like the first time you visit a church or the first time you go anywhere, you wonder, how is this going to go? There's this nervousness, there's a discomfort associated with this type of entry into a world that you're not currently a part of. For some, that discomfort has to do with past experiences. If you've had some poor experiences in quote-unquote church community environments, That'll make you a little gun-shy, too. You went to a church group. You went to a Bible study. You hung out privately with some Christians, and you dared to be honest about something that was going wrong in your life, and you got judgment, or you got a bunch of unsolicited advice about how you can quickly get better because your lack of progress makes me uncomfortable, so I'm going to make you uncomfortable. Nothing makes you want to sign up for community groups less than that. You know, so I get why we don't, but just because there are experiences we've had that have been poor does not necessarily mean they can't be good in the future, nor is it possible that there's something better for us out there. I, I use this analogy of late. If you've ever watched this television show, Gold Rush, there's two different, sometimes three different groups that are digging for gold. One of them is the Hoffman crew, and they're the most incompetent bunch of religious people I've ever met in my life, and I'm not sure why they went into gold mining, but I want to strangle them by the end of every show because they don't know what they're doing, and they foolishly venture in, and I think I would never even gold mine after watching these people. But then there's another family, the Schnabel family, and they have years of wisdom and experience and they make wise decisions and they're not believers but they certainly make better decisions than the Christian guys and, and, and I think well then I really can mine gold if I've had the right amount of counsel and this is what we're talking about we're moving into an area of life where we say I don't know what my experiences have been in the past but it is possible to navigate this area called communal church activity and it not be a devastating experience. Now, let's transition to the text. In Acts 4 and 5, what you have is two stories. We're going to show the first one. Let me tell you real quickly about the second one that would come in Acts chapter 5. In Acts 5, there's a couple, Ananias and Sapphira, that do not tell the truth about how much money they donated to the building campaign. Not the building campaign, I'm sorry. It was a collection for the poor. I got building campaign in my head after this past fall. Seriously, they said they gave this much, but in reality, they held back some of it. They wanted glory for themselves. They wanted the community to tell them how wonderful they are. 
that is contrasted. So this section you could call it the tale of two givers. Because in Acts chapter 4, the end of the passage, which we've read today, we see the story of a guy named Joseph who is cited as a giver, who has correct motives. His gift glorified God and it refreshed others. In fact, his nickname Barnabas means the son of encouragement. So we read the text here from Acts 4, 35 through 37. This is how the community manifested itself. This is what it looked like. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is the good story. Now, these two stories given to us, the one that you could read on your own about the couple that ends up dying because they lied about it, these two stories are meant to show this contrast between two stories of financial sacrifice, but really they demonstrate the difference between two different approaches to community. Take the money thing off the table altogether. The first asks, what can I do to serve community? And the second asks, what can I get from community? This is really just two stories of two different people and their approach to church life. Can I get something from the church as opposed to can I give something to the church? Before we can have this selfless attitude towards our time and energy, let alone our resources, we'll need to look at what actually drove the Christians of this generation to live this kind of lifestyle. This is the, by, this is the byproduct. What actually produced the desire to be this generous with their stuff? Now, insert your time and energy where it says had field and sold. All right, just say you decided that of your precious Netflix binge time, this is a personal issue with me, I'm going to sacrifice some of that to now care for some people. Now, uh, I have to ask, how does one get to that place? It certainly isn't through you going to church and having your pastor beat you up about it, because that never works. I've tried, and you guys just haven't. No, I'm just kidding. Um, I've had that done to me, and all it does is make me do it for like a month, and then I say, forget it, I got better things to do. So guilt and shame works on a short-term basis, but it's not going to produce any helping, lasting transformation in our lives. So... In order to understand what was going on in verses 35 through 37, we've got to look back even further. So let's take a quick look at Acts 4, 32 through 34 with this thought in mind. What you see is that believers in community know that all they have belongs to the Lord. This is what is driving them to this kind of generosity. So let's dissect these two ver three verses together. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. You see in this passage the great power of the Spirit that led to great acts of grace. And, and know that when we talk about the power of the Spirit, we're not just talking about Star Wars and the Force. 
We're talking about people who are interacting with the risen Christ. Hence the reference to the resurrection of Jesus being the central proclamation of this community. These are not people that are just ascribing to a political or religious system. These are people that are involved with and actively involved with the movement of the Spirit in their life. They are communing with God and with each other. They are experiencing the living God as he is represented not only in the Holy Spirit's presence in their lives, but in the lives of other people in the church. And it is this unity around the power and the presence of God's Spirit in their lives that begins to produce this grace that produces all of these works, these miraculous conversions and healings. And perhaps the greatest miracle of them all is the transformation of hearts that would now see their their possessions as not their own, but the Lord. It says here in this passage that no, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. It's an interesting statement. It seems self-contradictory. None of the things that belong to me are mine. So then I guess they don't belong to you then. And this was the mentality that they were approaching. These believers shared in common one thing. They no longer needed their possessions for full life. And they discovered that there was actually more life in giving them away. That's why Jesus would have been quoted in Acts 20, 35 as saying it's more blessed to give than receive. See, it's amazing that we see this transformation having taken place in their lives. These believers saw what Acts 5 records Ananias and Sapphira didn't see. They didn't know or genuinely experience real life found in Christ. They thought it was in the abundance of their possessions. They thought, in their case, it wasn't just the money they held back. It was that they were living for the praise of the community instead of the honor of giving to the Lord. What these healthy Christians have in common, if we look at passage uh, at chapter 4 verses 32 through 34 what these healthy believers have in common is that they all know that what they have comes by way of God's grace they all know they have in common they have everything in common which means their possessions didn't belong to them but their possessions didn't belong to you either their possessions all belong to the Lord this is not communism This is not a manifesto for us to create a centralized government where we all pile our stuff together and distribute as people are in need. This is a demonstration of the the byproduct, the healthy byproduct of a community that really is enjoying and knowing Jesus in a powerful way with each other where there is a natural sort of sense that I have to meet these needs. My needs are being met by knowing the Lord. I really don't need that extra car. I really don't need... Uh, this extra food in my house. I really don't need things that I've been holding on to. I find greater joy in giving those things away than keeping them. And this is certainly the case when it comes to our time. When we say, you know, I've, I've kind of set this time aside for just me. That's great. Is that all you've ever done with your time? In other words, is it all yours? I think there's important to recognize that God's calling you and I to say, part of our time which is really God's time, needs to be stewarded for others. You know when your kids are little, they master the use of the word mine. It's usually what starts fights in a house. 
You'll hear it from the other room. Mine! You know, and, and, and so they get really possessive of their things. Mine should come out of the mouths of Christians as often as the word deserve, which I'd humbly submit to you, is never. <laughs> Nothing that I have is mine. I'm sorry if that's bad news for you. You're a Christian and you listen to a Joel Osteen broadcast and you thought you could just pile it up. Um, sorry, it's all Jesus's and you get to give it all away as he sees fit and keep some of it for your own enjoyment, but it's all his to steward. And our time is the same way. It's, it's his time for his use and for others. And if you don't believe me, let's look at the scriptures. Psalm 24 verses 1 through 2. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. The Apostle Paul echoes this in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? See, when a person has a genuine experience of knowing and enjoying Jesus and experiences the power of his spirit within a community, they begin to see transformation, not just to their actions, but their attitudes towards possessions and time. And it even changes the way we look at sacrifice. We realize as we get deeper in our comprehension that Jesus has provided for us everything we would need to know him. He pursued us. He, by grace, enabled us to see and understand the gospel. He gave us faith to believe. He has empowered us to live. He gives us breath. He protects us with his angels. Every step of every day is guarded by his providential grace. The more we understand this, the more we begin to realize that everything we have is his. And it begins to look incongruous for us to say, yes, I'm growing in my comprehension of the gospel and all that Jesus has done for me from the beginning of my faith to the end. He's the author. He's the perfecter. He is responsible for all of that. It begins to seem really strange to go, but I'm really responsible for what I've done over here and I get credit for this and I get this. This is mine. It seems odd and out of place, and that's because it is odd and out of place. Have you been really good and accomplished at your job, in your schooling, in other areas of life? Fantastic, and I bet God's proud of you. He is. But I know as somebody who's tried to achieve things in life that we only achieve what God enables us to achieve. Our health, we can't really control that. I'm evidence of that today. You know what? Our life can be taken from us in a moment. I didn't create myself. Did you create yourself with the talents and the abilities that you naturally have? Did you pick the family you were born into? Did you pick the people who walked into your life and all of a sudden began to influence you in a strong way? See, any way you carve it up, we find ourselves in need of other people who God used, and it's all by his grace. And as we see this, we see a renewal of our mind. We begin to see the possessions we have as gifts from him to steward. We begin to see the time he has given us as his to use for all sorts of people, including some of it for ourselves, but for others and our souls. And we realize that any sacrifice we make will result in greater joy 
knowing that God has used us. But it still comes down to you and I recognizing the biblical directive that there is great joy in giving time to others. It may feel like a burden at the moment, but there is great health associated with finding that place where you know others and they know you. And I know it's risky. And I pray and will pray at the end of our service today that our community groups, the, the 10 that we have, would be great places of safety where I pray that you would never walk into one of them and tell everybody about a deep struggle you're having or just an area where you just do not care oftentimes what the Lord says and get judgment. We want people to say, we'll pray for you. We're with you. We humbly walk with you and know what that's like. We would want you to feel safe because this is, if not here, where? See, this is what we hope for when we ask for people to consider being a part of community. But it still takes an awkward set of steps sometimes to get over the barriers that are between you and that experience. It was 37 years ago, this Christmas vacation, that my family took a trip to Hawaii. It was the first time I'd ever been to Hawaii. And uh, I have five sisters and me, and my dad um, uh, and I sometimes got guy time. And it was just about the time when they decided they all wanted to go shop for shoes or something along those lines, not to stereotype all women as shoe shoppers. But I have two at my house, too, so I really don't understand how it works. But... Dad and I ended up at a snorkeling uh, location. Uh, that it's actually called Hanauma Bay in Hawaii. And here's a couple of pictures. This one here will show you that this used to be a volcano 30,000 years ago. Uh, seismologists and archaeologists will tell you that this uh, volcanic area just blew. And it blew so big that it blew the side out of the mountain. And so the water you see going into the side of this bay, think of that at one time that was a volcano that kind of sort of fell into the sea, if you will. This aerial shot of it will give you even better sense. The, the, the section to the left was one volcano. The section to the right you can see blew the other way. But a tremendous volcanic activity produced this, this bay. And inside this now is this amazing coral reef that was formed by hot lava and ocean water. And, and, and over the years produced all this amazing life. So dad and I went snorkeling in this area. And uh, back in the 70s, they didn't know all they know now about the, how quickly a coral reef can get ruined by people walking on it. So just so you know, you couldn't do what I'm about to tell you I did now. Uh, because they are trying to bring the coral reef back to life. Back in the 70s, they had just kind of sort of opened this area to snorkeling and tourism. And uh, so there were really two parts to this experience. Early or close to the beach, there was about a waist-deep water, all right, and, you could, and there was, it was clear as day. I mean, it was like ocean water on the Pacific coast. If you grew up on the East Coast or anywhere near Michigan lakes, you know that you know, water isn't clear. Uh, you can't see your feet at the bottom of whatever you're standing in. So when you go to Hawaii for the first time as a 15, 14, 15 year old, and you can see your toenails, it's sort of like an amazing experience. So just the fascination of getting into water that was clear. And then in this, this shallow area in front of the coral reef was filled with fish. There wasn't a lot of plant life, but there were all sorts of fish of different colors and 
you know, when you're getting your, your snorkeling fins under you, you can, you're, you're, you can see these things and they'll come right up to your goggles. And it was just unbelievable. Never seen anything like it in my life. But even as a kid, you, you get bored. I mean, after an hour or two of swimming around in the shallow end, you go, is there any more to this? And then you realize there is. But it requires you to walk across what was at one stretch, about 20 feet of this coral reef. Now, this is not an easy thing to do in flip-flops, and it's not easy to do because coral reefs are like sharp and like painful. And so walking across a coral reef is A, not good for the reef, as we previously mentioned, but it's also not good for your feet. So my dad, wise as he was as an older man, said, I'm not going to do that. And then me as a foolish young man said, heck yeah, I'm going to do this. Other people are doing it. So I muscled my way across this coral reef. It was painful. And then I got to the edge, the other side of this coral reef, and then I had to jump into the deep waters. And this is where the fish were bigger and the water was darker. But deep inside, there was such beauty. So I plunged in. And I have over the years used this metaphor as what it really is like for people to take the chance to risk getting involved beyond the surface with a Christian community. Oftentimes we will visit a church, and I say we because I've been as guilty as, as anybody else at this. And you go to a church and you swim around in the shallow end for a while. It's new and fascinating and clear, but then it gets kind of boring. And then you're faced with a choice. You're standing there. And you have to walk across what might be an awkward barrier to get to the next level. And the next level is just getting to really know people. And it's a frightening experience. It's frightening because, you, you know, you don't know what's on the other side. You don't know what's going to happen relationally. You think, I'm going to see the bad part of people, and they're going to see the worst parts of me. And historically, that hasn't always gone so well for me. And so I just as soon avoid it. But God has said that there's something really rich and beautiful and, and precious for us in that deep water if we're willing to go across those barriers, if we're willing to make the sacrifice of our time, if we're willing to make the sacrifice of effort, if we're willing to make the sacrifice of comfort. God's saying, don't just do this because I say do it. He's saying... Friends, I've got something really amazing for you on the other side of this walk of difficulty, this barrier. Will you do it? Because that's where life and community is. Larry Crabb says this, we were designed to love, and when we do, something good develops inside. We feel clean, rich, whole. Even better, we become less concerned with how we feel and more concerned with the lives of others. Let's pray to that end today, shall we?